Welcome to For What It's Worth, a podcast from Raymond James designed to help you plan, invest, and live smarter. Hi, listeners, and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Paige Lenson. We're glad to have you with us. You can find this episode and more For What It's Worth on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. In this episode, we'll be getting up to speed on the oil industry, how it's been impacted by major events over the last year, and how it will respond to the election of Abraham Raisi as Iran's next president. I'm pleased to be joined by Raymond James energy analyst, Pavel Molchanov. Pavel, welcome. It's good to be speaking with you again. Thanks for having me. Let's start by revisiting some of the major events of 2020. How did the pandemic's onset affect the global oil market? The pandemic was uh, the most uh, disruptive event, uh, to state the obvious, that uh, most of us have have lived through. Uh, It was the most disruptive event for the global economy in um, many decades, worse than the global financial crisis in many ways. And for the global oil market in particular, it was the uh, biggest shock in at least 50 years. Uh, Much worse than the global financial crisis, worse than uh, the the Gulf War, than the Iraq War, uh, than Brexit, than any of the other major kind of geopolitical events we've seen in, in modern history. In the second quarter of 2020, this is when four and a half billion people worldwide were in lockdown, two thirds of the planet's population. Global oil demand fell by 20%. One fifth of it was just erased. In aviation, it was much, much more than that. In ground transport, it was less than that, but 20% of the world's oil demand was temporarily wiped out. As the economic reopening began in the summer of 2020, about half of that initial collapse in demand came back rather quickly. So this for example, includes um, you know city buses resuming, you know some driving, of course, uh, you know especially for um, uh, for you know essential workers and, and so forth. Uh, but even now, you know this is almost a year and a half now into the pandemic. Global demand has not recovered to the pre-COVID level of 100 million barrels a day. Right now, it's probably about 95, 96 million barrels a day, so about 4 to 5% below uh, the the pre-COVID level. And our team's thinking is that it will take another 12 months, so to the summer of 22, for global oil demand to fully recover to the pre-COVID level. You noted in a recent report, and I I think that investors may not realize that Asia, excluding China, accounted for 17% of global oil demand pre-COVID. 
that's a region that's still seeing big impacts, maybe more so than what we're experiencing in the U.S. What have you seen related to that? Yeah, so taking a step back just on on the public health aspect of this, you know, as we're doing this recording in in the second half of June, 400,000 people a day are being diagnosed with COVID worldwide. Now, that is well below the all-time highs of about 800,000 that was set in April. But 400,000 a day is actually about as bad as it was last December before anybody was vaccinated. And of those 400,000, you know, new, new infections daily, you know, there are two countries that account for about half of that number. Uh, one is India and one is Brazil. If we you know, think about India just, just by itself, it's a billion and a half people. And you know, more than 5% of the world's oil demand is actually not that much relative to the population. But then other countries in, in Asia Pacific, uh, you know, some smaller economies like uh, Malaysia, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, and some you know, big economies like Japan and Taiwan have serious COVID situations right now as well. And you might say, you know, why are they having such a uh, tough time with, with COVID now? The answer is very low vaccination rates. It's, it's interestingly, it's not a question of high income or low income so much. It's really a function of does the, the population in that country have a high demand for vaccination? And we've seen in, in you know, rich countries like Japan or, or, or Australia and relatively you know, uh, low-income in- countries like uh, India and Pakistan, the the pace of vaccination has been very slow. Uh, you know, compared certainly compared to North America and Europe, but but even compared to Latin America as well, or China for that matter. So that explains why Asia has the bulk of uh, the the world's COVID um, cases that are being added now, and therefore the lockdowns that we are seeing, you know, about a billion people, hard to imagine, but true, a billion people are still in lockdown right now around the world. None of them are in the United States, very few of them, maybe 5% of them are in Europe. Uh, The vast, vast majority of that billion people in lockdown are in Asia Pacific, not including China. Uh, And, some in South America as well, in Argentina and Venezuela, for example, but mostly in, in Asia Pacific, ex-China. So that's where the impact of COVID on oil demand is the most uh, visible right now. And therefore, of that gap between today's oil demand and what it was pre-COVID, it really is Asia where demand has the furthest room still to recover. Can you talk a little bit about that drop in demand and the resulting impact on price? Because last year we had 
that period of time where oil's futures were negative. Uh, and there was a lot of investor interest around how is that even possible? What does that mean? Can you talk a little bit about that and whether you think more of that could be in the future? Oil prices turned negative for literally a, a matter of, you know, couple, couple days in April 2020, and only in a very specific uh, location. It was the West Texas uh, oil price that's measured in, in a particular place in Oklahoma, uh, because those storage tanks at that time literally were uh, filling up beyond their capacity. There was nowhere to put those barrels. So the market essentially said, send them anywhere except here. And that's what that negative price meant. You Thinking about global oil prices, we look at what's called Brent uh, crude as, as the benchmark. You know, that dropped to uh, about, you know, $20 a barrel. At that point, uh, still the lowest that price uh, was at, at any point in modern history, again, lower than it was during the, the global financial crisis. Uh, but that also did not last long. The, the reason that collapse in prices did not last long is largely uh, because of Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia really stepped up. We have to give them their, their credit for this. Stepped up, cut production as steeply as anybody could have imagined, and single-handedly saved the global oil market. If it were not for Saudi Arabia, with a little bit of an assist from Russia and a few other uh, OPEC countries, oil prices would be not negative, of course, but would be very depressed probably to this day. So, you know, OPEC um, played a, a crucial role. And right now, the, the spot price of, of oil, you know, over $70 a barrel is the highest level of the entire pandemic because demand has recovered, not, not completely, to, but to a large extent. And OPEC is still being very disciplined, very careful with supply, trying to keep um, prices supported. Another event in recent months that has had an impact on the oil market, particularly in the United States, was the Colonial Pipeline hack. It led to some temporary shortages along the U.S. East Coast. Do you see this as a significant event for the industry, especially when it comes to privacy and security? Colonial Pipeline cyber attack was a, a, a marquee event, not just for oil pipelines, but for critical infrastructure broadly. There, there's a teachable moment here that's really important. Uh, whether somebody is running a pipeline or an airport or a seaport or a, a, a power company, critical infrastructure is going to be targeted by cyber criminals and it will only get worse. Admiral Rogers, the former head of the NSA uh, five or six years ago, was one of the first high-ranking US government officials to sound the alarm, to his credit. 
not a lot of people listened in those days because it, the threat seemed theoretical. Well, now it, it's very real. You know, actual uh, cyber uh, criminals, or some people might call them cyber terrorists, are you know trying to make money by uh, extorting large companies through, for example, these so-called ransomware attacks. And they and these cyber criminals have no problem with shutting down important infrastructure and literally, I mean, hurting large amounts of people, uh, causing real harm if that's what it takes for them to make some money. Uh, and that's just the, the world we live in. So being ready for these cyber attacks is essential for management teams to think about. You know, supposedly the Colonial Pipeline paid somewhere uh, around $5 million in, in ransom. Maybe some of that you know, money ended up being, being recouped by the government. Uh, but nonetheless, it cost much less than that to buy cybersecurity software to protect yourself in advance. Not only is it cheaper, but it avoids the impact on the economy, on the consumer, right? Uh, and if having a shortage of gasoline is bad enough, you can imagine how uh, widespread and serious the damage might be if it's an electricity outage, you know, for, for millions of people lasting a long time or a water outage. So better safe than sorry, investing in cyber protection is really important uh, for infrastructure companies to, um, to do in advance before the attack happens rather than after the horse has already left the barn. Let's turn to a very recent event. Iran has just elected Ibrahim Raisi as its new president. This wasn't a surprising outcome, but you had written in advance of the election that this was going to be the oil market's most important political event of the year. What makes it so significant? It's a very important political event. Now, politics, of course, is not the only thing that matters for, for, for oil, as we've learned during the pandemic. Uh, but you know, Iran, frankly, matters even if it had no oil at all. Uh, it is the largest, most populous country in the Middle East, 80 million people, uh, with a very powerful military and nuclear program that has raised you know, concerns in capitals around the world. And Iran also you know, produced not long ago uh, 4 million barrels a day, which is ab about as much as Canada, you know, or to put it differently, about half as much as the United States. In 2015, Iran signed an agreement with major powers to freeze its nuclear program in exchange for being allowed to sell as much oil as it wants. Well, that lasted about three years. In 2018, what happened is that um, then-President Trump reimposed U.S. sanctions against Iran. And by extension, sanctions were threatened against foreign countries 
that might want to buy Iranian oil. Because the US never bought any Iranian oil in, you know, since the 70s. And so Iran has, has had problems selling its oil abroad for the last three years. We've seen new talks with Iran since President Biden took office. Uh, involving, again, the U.S., but, but also other major powers. But as uh, we say, you know, it takes two to tango. So the, the U.S. wants a deal and the Europeans want a deal. Does Iran want a deal? Well, that's a question for the Iranian government. Now, the, the ultimate head of the Iranian government is actually not the president. It's the supreme leader who is not elected. But the president is the number two person in the government. And so we have to look carefully at who is, in fact, in that position. For the last eight years, it's been a moderate president, Hassan Rouhani. Well, he is about to be replaced by a hardliner, Ebrahim Raisi, the, the current um, head of the Iranian justice system. Uh, he is um, authoritarian. He is nationalistic. He's very uh, politically conservative, and he uh, does not have the same appetite for negotiation or, or openness that um, the incumbent president has had over the last eight years. So by shifting to a hardliner in charge, at a minimum, it will probably delay these nuclear talks, which are already very complicated. Uh, and in the worst case scenario, now, although I, I, I doubt it will end up being this extreme, you know, it could, could actually um, put an end to, to the talks altogether. I think more likely it's just going to drag out the process uh, because the, the number one concern on the part of Washington and the European governments as well is what will be the enforcement of any nuclear arrangement with Iran? How will it, how will it be implemented? And having a hardliner who is quite aggressive and belligerent in charge in Iran is not good from the standpoint of building trust between the two sides. Raisi is set to take office in August is there any chance that a deal would be reached and put into effect ahead of that transition later this year? Yeah, so the, you know, the, the current moderate president, Hassan Rouhani, uh, you know, will, will still be kind of a lame duck for the, for the next two months. Yes, the government could, could sign an agreement in, in that time. Uh, but of course, any negotiator from the you know, from the American side or the European side, has to think, well, what will the new administration do once it comes into power? Because ultimately, the agreement will be implemented by the new administration taking office in, in August. And that lack of trust, given the hardline nature of the new president, uh, is going to, you know, make, make it difficult uh, to finalize anything in the next um, you know six, six weeks or so. So I, I, I think the odds are, uh, are are against some you know done deal over this 
you know, very near term time frame, um, you know, th there is certainly a possibility that Ebrahim uh, Raisi will, you know, end up doing a, a satisfactory agreement. But as I said, the, the key question is implementation. Uh, even if there, there is something signed, it will take you know, quite a while, it, it, easily six months, perhaps longer, uh, to implement the security protocols, the, uh, the inspections on the part of Iran, uh, and for uh, the Western uh, allies to feel confident that sanctions against Iran can be lifted. And again, all of this will be happening in the context of this change uh, in the Iranian government that, that's quite, um, quite, a, quite a substantial change from a moderate to a hardline administration. So it just adds complication to the process. If at whatever point we do get to a place where sanctions are lifted, even if it's not in the near term, how significant of an event would that be for the oil market? What would it do for overall global supply? Well, because it's not going to happen right away, we should assume that global demand will be higher at that point than, than it is right now. So for example, you know, I mentioned earlier that we anticipate global oil demand to get back to 100 million barrels, the pre-COVID level by the summer of 22. So if let's say Iran is producing 4 million barrels a day in the summer of 22, which is up from 2 million barrels a day currently, that extra supply would be fully absorbed by the, the rising level of demand. In other words, the oil market will need more, more barrels at that point to accommodate the revival in demand. Uh, so in, in that sense, it would not be uh, you know, superfluous. It would not cause a glut uh, in and of itself. If those extra barrels came on the market tomorrow, then you know, prices would go down. But the, the practical reality is it's not going to be tomorrow. Uh, it, it will take um, you know, many months, uh, you know, per, per, perhaps uh, over a year for that supply to uh, come back on the market once sanctions are lifted at the final stage of implementing any nuclear deal that may end up being reached. You've mentioned summer of 2022 as potentially a time when demand would be largely recovered from the pandemic. But let's talk about your outlook generally. What do you think we'll see the rest of this year, 2021? Our view is that oil prices will be uh, flattish to somewhat higher over the next six months. So, you know, towards the end of the year, demand should be improving over the next six months, partly because of rising vaccination levels, including in, in Asia Pacific. You know, as we talked about, this being the region of the world with the most lockdowns uh, at, at this uh, rather late stage. At the same time, supply from Saudi Arabia and Russia 
will be rising as they accommodate the, the increase in demand. You know, we put those two things against each other, uh, and that speaks to prices being you know, relatively consistent with, with current levels, yet yeah, maybe, maybe a little higher. But what's interesting is that the futures curve of the commodity market is in what we call backwardation. That means it's downward sloping. So every month on the futures curve is, has a lower price than the month before. So the commodity market is signaling that prices should be going down from current levels. So even if they just stay flat, that would be better than what the commodity market is currently pricing in. Longer term, what do you expect to see in this industry? Well, in the very long run, if we think uh, into the second half of this decade and you know 2030, we're not going to be talking about COVID anymore, of course. Uh, we're not going to be talking about Iranian sanctions. What we're going to be talking about more and more is what's called the energy transition. Now, this will probably be a topic for a longer conversation down the road, which I'm looking forward to. But in a nutshell, energy transition is the relentless, unstoppable, and increasingly needle-moving global megatrend away from fossil fuels towards renewable and low-carbon energy sources also known as decarbonization. Energy transition will ultimately cause global oil demand to go down on a permanent basis. Now, that does not mean that that will happen tomorrow or next year, uh, to be clear. And even once it happens, it's going to be a slow process rather than you know, falling off a cliff as we saw in the early days of COVID. So it really is a transition rather than a, a one-time event. But that's going to be the overriding, the, the dominant story in everything relating to energy, not only in, in oil, but, you know, coal, oil, natural gas, uh, you know, nuclear power to some extent, are you know, going to shrink over time. And things like wind, solar, hydrogen, energy efficiency, electric vehicles will be the you know, main growth drivers. Uh, again, over a very long period measured in decades, decades, not years. But that, that is what we will be increasingly talking about uh, over the you know, long run when it comes to the world's energy future. We'll appreciate your perspective on it as it continues to unfold. Raymond James Energy Analyst, Pavel Molchanov. Pavel, thank you again for sitting down and, and sharing your perspective with us today. Thank you, Paige. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. You can find more episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe. For what it's worth, I'll see you next time.
All opinions and information, including any price references or market forecasts, correspond to the recording date listed in this episode's description. Any performance figures noted do not include fees or charges, which would reduce an investor's returns. The information contained in this podcast is not research, nor does it constitute the provision of any investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or recommendations to the listener. Raymond James and its financial advisors do not provide tax or legal advice, and you should discuss any tax or legal matters with the appropriate professional. Past performance is not an indication of future results. There is no assurance any investment strategy will be successful. Investing involves risk, and investors may incur a profit or a loss. Investment products are not deposits, not FDIC-NCUA insured, not insured by any government agency, not bank guaranteed, subject to risk and may lose value. Copyright 2020 Raymond James and Associates Inc. Member New York Stock Exchange, SIPC. Copyright 2020 Raymond James Financial Services Inc. Member FINRA, SIPC. Investing in the energy sector involves special risks, including the potential adverse effects of state and federal regulation, and may not be suitable for all investors.